as Pastor Brian read for us um, from the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, um, our text this morning is going to be focusing on verses 6 through 7. And again, there, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. In 1744, the well-known English evangelist and hymn writer Charles Wesley, he wrote the famous hymn that we just sang this morning, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. I'm so glad we sang that song. Now, there are 16 lines in that song, and it reads, Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone, by thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Now, Charles Wesley published this hymn in his Hymns for the Nativity of Our Lord, now, his purpose for writing it was to move people to do two things. First, he wanted people to remember. He wanted them to remember the first coming of Christ into the world. And then secondly, he wanted to prepare people for the second coming of Christ. Now, later, in December 23rd of 1855, the fame of this short hymn, it spread throughout England when a young 21-year-old Baptist preacher named Charles Spurgeon included this hymn in a Christmas sermon. And because of its popularity later in 1875, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus was published in the Methodist Wesleyan hymn book, and we are still singing it today. And every time we sing this Christmas hymn, it's moving us to remember the first advent of Christ, and it's also preparing us for the second advent of Christ. Now, before Wesley's hymn in 1755, there were the words of the prophet Isaiah in 740 BC, almost 2,500 years earlier. And these are the words that we have here in Isaiah chapter 9 verses six and seven. And these words that we read, these are words about Christ Jesus. These are words about Jesus, the Messiah. And every time we read Isaiah chapter nine, verses six and seven, these words move us, number one, to remember, to remember the first advent of Christ, and then number two, to prepare for the second advent of Christ. And because the scripture of our morning 
together is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. I've entitled this sermon, The Christ of Christmas. And as Pastor Brian mentioned, today we begin a series of four Christmas messages on Sunday mornings that are directed to or designed to direct our attention onto Christ in this Christmas season. You know, the Christmas season should be a time when we are celebrating the good tidings of great joy, which is for all people. And what we mean by that, it's the good news that Jesus the Savior, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Lord was born into this sin-bound, broken world to redeem us from sin and to bring us to God. And so these four sermons are designed to move us towards seeing and contemplating Christ the Lord. In our gatherings, we want our our attention to be turned upon Christ. We want to look full in his wonderful face so that the things of earth, especially during this busy Christmas season, would grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen? And so today in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7... These words are intended to move us to see and contemplate the Christ of Christmas because he is the reason for the season. And so we begin here with a prophecy about Christ. The prophet Isaiah anticipated Christ. In fact, he wrote about him in the book of Isaiah. There are 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. The first part has 39 chapters, and its theme is God's judgment. The second part of Isaiah has 27 chapters, and the theme is God's salvation. That's why the book of Isaiah has been referred to as a mini-Bible. And the book of Isaiah contains more prophecies about Jesus, the Messiah, than any other Old Testament book. And check this out. These prophecies, they were written down over 700 years before Christ was born. When you open up to the book of Isaiah in these 66 chapters, we see the pre-incarnate Christ in Isaiah chapter 6 when compared to John 12, 41. We see that he's called the Messiah in Isaiah 61. His virgin birth is foretold in Isaiah 7. He being a Nazarene is foretold in Isaiah 11. His public ministry is foretold in Isaiah 61. His ministry in Galilee is foretold in Isaiah 9. His sufferings and sacrificial death are foretold in Isaiah 53. His second coming is foretold in Isaiah 63. The judgment of humanity is foretold in Isaiah 66, and his rule and reign on the earth are foretold in Isaiah 9 and 11. That's why the book of Isaiah is called the fifth gospel, bearing witness of Christ next to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 700 years before Jesus was born. And here in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, the prophet Isaiah testifies of Jesus the Messiah. You see, first, this is Isaiah's prophecy about the birth of Christ. In Isaiah 9, 6, we read, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Listen, this is the language of the original Christmas story, right? 
In Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, we read, And the angel said to them, speaking to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Listen, for unto you is born. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And the birth of Christ fulfilled the prophecy of the prophet Isaiah. But not only does Isaiah 9 verses 6 and 7 speak to us about the birth of Christ, but it also speaks about the reign of Christ. In the verses that we read this morning, in verses 6 and 7, Isaiah tells us concerning this Christ that the government will be upon his shoulder. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. You see, these words look ahead into the future. It looks ahead to the return and to the reign of King Jesus on the earth. It's also called the 1,000-year reign of Christ. We read about it in Revelation chapter 20. And so here, from the birth of Christ to the return of Christ, the reign of Christ, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, it moves us to remember the first coming of Christ into the world, and it prepares us for his second coming. And here in these two verses, written 700 years before Jesus was born, we see the incarnation of Christ. The incarnation of Christ. In verse 6, again, the prophet says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The first thing I'd like us to see from these words is that being human... Christ was born. This is what the prophet is emphasizing with the words, a child is born. Being human, Christ was born. Listen, the birth of Jesus was both miraculous and physical, right? It was miraculous. He was born of a virgin. That's a miracle. Again, the same prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 7, 14, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then 700 years later, Matthew and Luke, in Matthew 1 and in Luke 1 and 2, they provide a historical account of the virgin birth of Jesus, the Messiah. And remember, Luke, who wrote about the virgin birth of Jesus, not only was he a man of history, but he was also a man of science. He was a doctor. And here's a doctor talking about the virgin birth of Jesus. It was miraculous. But not only is the birth of Jesus miraculous, but listen, it was also physical. You see, Jesus was born in a fully human body to a fully human woman, and that is what makes this physical. Jesus was not a mere spirit. He was not just a ghost. He was a human person with a human body who was visible and audible and tangible. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 24, 39, look at my hands and feet, it is I myself, touch me and see, a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. 
Now, in this current Christmas series, I'm really excited to not only be a part of sharing with you from the word, but also sitting along with you, listening to the word, because in this current Christmas series, we're going to hear more about the full humanity of Christ in these Christmas sermons that are going to follow this one. Because you can't talk about Christmas without the incarnation. So being human, Christ was born. But listen, being God, Christ was given. Being God, Christ was given. As a human, a child is born unto us. But as God, a son is given. Now, the Bible teaches us that God is triune. That means he is one God eternally existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, God the Son is called the Son in Psalm 2. It's a title. And God the Son became human, and his name is Jesus. And God the Son becoming human is the biblical Christian doctrine of incarnation. It's a big word, but it's an important one. Incarnation means in flesh. And again, in Isaiah 7.14, the prophet Isaiah calls Jesus the Messiah, Emmanuel, which means God with us. And guys, this is one of those huge, mysterious teachings of the Bible that we cannot fully wrap our minds around. In fact, the Apostle Paul put it this way. He said in, there in 1 Timothy 3.16, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, or as the New Living Translation puts it, this is the great mystery of our faith. God was manifested in the flesh. You see, Christ is not a human who became God. That's impossible. But what the Bible teaches us about Christ is that he is God who became human. That's incarnation. Jesus is more than just a man. Jesus is the God-man. And concerning this God-man, next the prophet gives to us the name of Christ. We see in verse 6, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. His name, not names plural, but his name singular. And the names of Christ, or the name of Christ, it's important for us to understand, is more than just the label. The name of Christ is a description of Christ. And so here in Isaiah 9, 6, we see that the name of Christ the Lord is revealed as four sets of titles that designate his position as ruler and describe the kind of ruler that he is. He's the wonderful counselor the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Who is Christ the Lord? He's the wonderful counselor. He's called wonderful. Now, the New King James Version of the Bible puts a comma after the word wonderful to distinguish it from the descriptions that follow. And if we open up any English dictionary and look up the word wonderful, we will find the words amazement, surprise, astonishment, 
awe, admiration, and even bewilderment. But you need to understand that the Hebrew dictionary is bigger, it's more robust. And so the Hebrew word that's translated wonderful, it means literally to separate. It means to distinguish. In fact, the word wonderful, this word, is also translated as marvelous, hidden, too high, too difficult, a miracle. The title here, wonderful, it carries the basic meaning of being unique, being different. This word wonderful, the New English translation translates it as extraordinary. That's a good word. The message paraphrases it as amazing. These are the words that are used to describe our king, our savior. Why? Because Christ is bigger and he is better than all created somethings and someones. Listen, it's important for us to all understand this morning as we've gathered in the house of God to worship God, that there is no one like Christ. There is no thing, nothing like him. He is wonderful. He is extraordinary. He is amazing in every way. Listen, if Jesus doesn't fill your heart with wonder, if Jesus does not fill your heart with wonder today, if Jesus does not fill your heart with wonder during this Christmas season, then your view of Jesus is too small. Christ is called wonderful. And the wonder of Christ should incite the worship of Christ. But this word wonderful is attached to something. It's attached to the word counselor. He is the wonderful counselor. That means that Christ, when he comes back, he will govern and guide his kingdom with truth and wisdom. I love the words of Isaiah the prophet in chapter 2. As Isaiah looks ahead to the rule and reign of King Jesus on the earth, and in Isaiah 2, 3, speaking about the wonderful counselor, he writes, people from many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God. There he, that's King Jesus, will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. For the Lord's teaching will go out from Zion. His word will go out from Jerusalem. In the future, we're going to all go to Jerusalem and Jesus is going to teach us a Bible study. What is that going to sound like? But he's going to counsel the nations because he's the wonderful counselor. But not only looking ahead, but also looking at the present. The wonderful counselor will not only govern and guide his kingdom with truth and wisdom, but listen, the wonderful counselor is also the soul healer that we need. The wonderful counselor is the soul healer that we need. Listen, we don't have to look very far to see that this broken world is filled with people who are feeling lost and desperate and hopeless and depressed in life. Hurting people are longing for someone who can fix their 
broken soul. And maybe you're one of those. Maybe you came because someone invited you to come and hear a Christmas message today, or maybe you've been getting lost in the crowd at church, keeping up the appearances of a happy soul, but you have a very sad soul. Listen, Christ is the answer for the world. And Christ is the answer for your life today. Paul the Apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit in Colossians 2.3, he wrote that in Jesus Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the wonderful counselor. And the wonderful counselor, Christ, he shows us who God is. In John 1.18, John writes, no one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. Listen, if you want to know what God is like, then just look at Jesus. That's our heart's desire, is that every person will see the real Christ today because Christ, the wonderful counselor, is the one who shows us how to find rest for our souls. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28, and 30, the wonderful counselor says, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. You see, Christ, the wonderful counselor, he loves you. We all need to hear it, but maybe there's someone here who specifically needs to hear that today. In this broken world, in this lonely world, Christ, the wonderful counselor, loves you. He died on the cross for you, and he rose again from the dead, and he invites you today to come to him and be free from the burden of your sins and guilt and shame and all works-based religions. That is the invitation. That is the counsel of the wonderful counselor for your life today but he's also called the mighty God. Jesus the Messiah is El Gabor. He is the mighty God incarnate. As John 1 verses 1 and 14 declares, in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness and we have seen his glory, the glory of the father's one and only son. As we're moving into Christmas season, let's remember that though Christ became fully human, to think of him as being less than God will lead you to wrong conclusions about him. C.S. Lewis, the author of Mere Christianity, as well as the Chronicles of Narnia, he said, quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. 
A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him, his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Wow. Any view of Jesus that is less than God will lead you to wrong conclusions about him. But Isaiah doesn't just call him God, he refers to him as the mighty God. That means that he's strong and powerful. He's the strong and powerful God who can and will bear the weight of the government upon his shoulders in the future. And knowing the strength of Christ, we see that he demonstrated it in the creation of the world. His power was demonstrated in the miracles that he performed. His power was demonstrated in his own resurrection from the dead. And listen, he continues to demonstrate his power and strength today in rescuing, in rescuing spiritually dead, sin-bound and condemned and broken and blind people from sin and hell and transforming them into spiritually alive, redeemed and justified whole and full of sight children of God. How much power does it take to do that? Well, Jesus can, and he does. That's why in Zephaniah 3.17 and in Isaiah 63.1, it declares that the mighty God is mighty to save. And listen, this mighty God wants to be your mighty savior today. Again, you might be here thinking, you do not know what my life looks like today. You don't know what kind of person I am. You don't know what kind of things that I've done. Listen, God, Christ, he is El Gabor. He's mighty to save. And whatever those things are that have taken control of your life, that you feel like you can never be free of, Jesus is the hero here who can set you free today. He's also called the Everlasting Father. The title is an idiom used to describe the the Messiah's relationship to time, not his relationship to the other members of the Trinity. A good way to understand the title Everlasting Father is to understand it as the Father or the source of eternity. Christ is from everlasting to everlasting, Psalm 90, verse 2 tells us. In fact, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, again, 700 years before Christ came, he writes, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. And listen to this description of Jesus, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. The father of eternity. He entered our world of time to bring us into eternal life. 
When we talk about eternal life, we are talking about a quantity of life. It is forever life, but more than just forever life, eternal life is also a quality of life. In fact, in John 17, three, Jesus describes eternal life when he says, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, Christ's description of eternal life is a real and meaningful and forever relationship with God. Listen, salvation is not just about being saved from hell. Salvation is about experiencing a forever life with God. And Christ himself is the real source of eternal life. In 1 John 5, 11 and 12, we read, and this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have God's son does not have life. Here's a big question. Do you have eternal life this morning? If not, you can. You can have eternal life this morning by believing the truth about Christ and receiving him as your savior. Who is our Christ that we worship and adore? He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and he is the prince of peace. Jesus the Messiah is Sar Shalom, the prince of peace. Shalom is translated peace. And this word shalom, it speaks of wellness and wholeness. It speaks of end of conflict and reconciliation. You see, in the future, King Jesus will rule and reign in the city of Jerusalem, which means the city of peace, and he will rule and reign on the earth, and that will be known as the era of peace. And when we talk about the era of peace, we are talking about an era where there will be wellness and wholeness. Speaking about the future kingdom of Jesus, Isaiah 35 verses five and six says, and when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness and streams will water the wasteland. Wow. It will be a time of wellness and wholeness, but also it will be an era where there will be no more wars and no more rumors of war. Isaiah 2 forces the Lord will mediate between nations and will settle international disputes. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. And our hearts are longing for this. Our hearts are longing for this and we are aware of how broken and how strife-filled our world is whenever we turn on the internet or the TV and we see what's happening all around the world. And no matter how many peace talks and how many peace treaties are, are scheduled and made. Listen, it's not until the Prince of Peace comes that the world will know the era of peace. But again, we're not just looking to the future. 
we also have to see that peace happens in the future because of what happened in the past. You see, the Christ of Christmas was born for the mission of reconciling believing sinners to God. Reconciliation, this is peace with God. In Luke 2.14, we read the angels declaring glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. You see, the sacrificial, atoning death of the Prince of Peace on the cross was God's plan of reconciling believing sinners to himself. You cannot disconnect the story of Christmas from Good Friday and Easter. In Colossians 1, 19 through 22, we read, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless and blameless before him. Listen, Christ was born and later he was slain for this. It was a peace mission to reconcile believing sinners to God. The king is coming in the future and he will bring in the era of peace and that's only possible because of what happened in the past. The prince of peace, he died in our place on the cross reconciling us to God. So in the present, what does that mean for you and me? In the present, we can be reconciled to God. In the present, you and I could be at peace with God. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 20 on through chapter 6, verse 2, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, be at peace with God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God working together with him. That's what's happening right here at this pulpit. God is making his appeal through me and through all the different pastors that are gonna be occupying this pulpit for the next few weeks. They're gonna be making their appeal, but it's God who's making his appeal to people who are outside of God's family. Be at peace with God. And he says, don't receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, at an acceptable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. When is that acceptable time? When is that day of salvation that people could be at peace with God? Paul goes on to say, see, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Any view of Jesus, any view of Jesus that will not make you either really love him or really hate him, you got the wrong Jesus. Jesus does not leave people in the middle. You will either leave this place this morning either really loving him or really hating him. There is no middle ground when we talk about the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. So how do we finish up this message? I'm gonna invite the band to come on up. 
And as they do, let me just give you some closing thoughts. In Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, as we have seen, it's all about King Jesus and his future kingdom on earth. We read it, the government will be upon his shoulder. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. It's about the kingdom of God. And listen, you need to understand today as we're moving into Christmas time that God wants you to be a forever resident and co-ruler with him in his kingdom. And to show you how committed this wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace is to you. Listen, he did all that he did to make a way for you to be a part of his family and his kingdom. God the son became human and lived among us to make the invisible God visible to us. He became poor so that we could become rich. He suffered so we could be healed. He died on the cross as our sin offering so we could receive God's eternal or God's gift of eternal life and live forever ever in a right and joyful relationship with God. And he rose from the dead so that we could share in his resurrection life. Listen, the best Christmas gift we could receive this year is the Christ of Christmas. How many of you guys can say amen to that? The best Christmas gift we could receive this year is the Christ of Christmas. Listen to, the, listen to what God the Father says during this Christmas season. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. Listen to what God says in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. What is the right response to this king who bears the title, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace? It's worship. You see, believing and receiving King Jesus is an act of our worship to him. That's why in Psalm 2, verse 12, the New King James Version says, kiss the son. The Christian Standard Bible translates those same words as pay homage to the son. At this moment, the worship team is gonna lead us in another song but it would be wrong for us to end this message without giving, a pe without giving people an opportunity to respond to this message, to come forward and to pay homage, to worship the King by giving your heart to Jesus and letting Jesus, the wonderful counselor, let him bring peace into your life to take away the burden of sin, to take away the burden of your, the, the guilt and shame of sin and to give you eternal life that you can enter into a real and forever relationship with God. So as the worship team sings, I'm gonna walk down to the bottom of the stage and I'm just gonna invite you, anyone here 
that have never given your heart to Jesus, or maybe you did give your life to Jesus before in the past, but you walked away from him, and, and maybe today was like your last-ditch effort before you actually fully, completely threw in the towel and said, I'm done with Christianity, but here you are, and God's Spirit is reaching out to you, and we're going to invite you to come forward to receive Christ. And the reason why we're going to ask you to get up out of your seat and to walk forward is because the New Testament uses two words to describe the Christian life. It's stand and walk. Guys, standing refers to the believer's position in Christ. Walk refers to the believer's practice or lifestyle in Christ. And Christians are people who stand and walk in Christ every day. And listen, standing and walking has to start somewhere. The moment we believe the good news about Jesus the Messiah and receive him by faith as our Savior and King, and I can't think of a better place for you to make your first stand and to take your first steps in your new walk than here in God's house with God's family. Because no one's going to be looking at you weird. We're going to be cheering you on. So let me pray for you. And then we're going to give you an opportunity to come and receive Christ. And then after we pray and as the worship team is leading us in song, you just get out of your seat and make your way forward to the front. Father, thank you again for sending to us a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And Lord, we believe that he is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And Lord, as people have heard this message this good news we pray now that your spirit will move hearts to respond to it with living faith because your word says that no one can come to the son unless the father draws him and so father we're asking you to draw people to christ today